We are here in the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate, London for episode 73 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the SEC won't let crypto be, Binance moves millions for minimal fees, and just when will John McAfee is on deck? All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and while I'm not joined by Colin, uh, I'm not anywhere near a field, um, but happy days, I am joined by the one and only Addy Benari, CEO and founder of Applied Blockchain. Addy, how are you? Yeah, very good, Simon. I'm really, really happy to have you here. You've been a busy boy and you've been around in the space for quite some time. We've heard you in cutaways, but we finally managed to get you in the show in human form. Uh, Last time you bailed because you had a sore voice. How's it doing now? Yeah, much, much better. Yeah, you're feeling, you've got those lungs ready and prepared for a a podcast of awesomeness. Let's do this. Alrighty, the first story comes from Coindesk.com and the SEC have settled a securities registration charge against two ICO startups. So the uh, SEC Friday announced uh, basically action on two firms, Carrier EQ Inc., also known as Airfox, and Paragon Coin Inc., both of which conducted token sales last year. Airfox raised around about $15 million through its token sale, while Paragon raised $12 million. The securities regulator contended that neither startup registered their ICOs as securities offerings, and neither qualified for registration exemptions. In addition to registering their tokens as securities, both companies will refund investors um, and the SEC are going to, they're both going to pay $250,000 in penalties. It looks like the uh, the SEC has gone from you should do this, you should do this to we're making you do it. Um, and also forcing people to repay their investors and then register and pay a fine, um, but not a hefty fine. No, that's right. I think um, what, what these guys must have saved in legal fees at the beginning, I think they're paying for now. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Interesting way to think about it. There's the old stitch in time metaphor there. Like, yes, you could get to market with an ERC-20 incredibly easily, but actually there are consequences. Those consequences tend to hit you years later. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the, you know, the, the SEC has been making uh, a lot of noise, I think, for a long time. And it's, uh, you know, it's been very clear that anybody who ignores it um, is taking a big risk. And of course, this space has been all about taking risks and some have taken big, bold steps and and been rewarded for them. Uh, But but this is the other side of it. I think the the other linked story here is the one from uh, Coindesk where uh, after the uh, actions, experts, which is always an interesting thing to say. Experts say the ICO party is truly over um, because the US regulated, so the SEC came out and said there is a path to compliance within the federal securities laws for startups issuing tokens, even if issuers have conducted an illegal unregistered offering. Um, and Nick Carter, who's a partner at Castle Island Ventures, said, my advice to all ICOs would be get ahead of the game, close up shop, delist the token, give everyone their money back and pursue a normal business model that doesn't require a token. Yeah, I would I, I would tend to agree with this uh, on many levels. Um, as you probably know, we looked closely at the space. Um, we actually started moving towards doing a token sale. And as we got closer to it, uh, a couple of things. One, we realized the party was over. Uh-huh. Um, we, we started looking for funding, realized a lot of it was coming from the Far East, ended up going over there. Uh, and people were asking us more for equity than for tokens. 
And the second thing is that some of the clients that we work with and some of the, let's say, regulated, regulated companies here in the UK and big businesses and even small businesses started uh, asking questions. And we realized that by having a token that isn't accepted in the US, even if you have US investors or you might want potential US investors in the future yeah. or people have, have some sort of ownership of your company and then your company owns this token, which the SEC might not be happy with, opens up all sorts of questions. It really does. It, and it puts you, if you do have existing revenues, it puts you in a really awkward place. And I think a lot of these organisations, there, there was a view of to uh, take the money while it's on the table. People don't want to leave money on the table because it was there to grab. But actually, that's a very short-sighted uh, kind of view because uh, unless you want to hide from the law from the rest of your life or not do business with the US, then you, you kind of put yourself in an interesting, challenging position. Um, and now we've seen, of course, with with the Far East, different regulators have different perspectives there. So if you wanted to be dealing with the Chinese regulators, you'd basically be uh, risking your your life and liberty as well. So interesting timing. This comes right after Ether Delta um, and. This is the beginning of fines. So there was the Munchie ICO that was halted in December. But like Airfox and Paragon, they had to refund investors. But the SEC didn't impose additional fines. So it feels to me like we'll make you refund the investors was step one. We'll make you refund the investors and register and pay a fine is step two. You know, kind of what comes next you know, is, is what's going to happen to the bigger ones. You know, the big names out there, free and safe, or the big names the next to next to get hit. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how this is working internally in the SEC. Whether there's a long list that they're gradually working through, and they have some 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 set of priorities, or, or this is it. Um, you know, and, and these were the ones they really wanted to target. Who I knows? Think- the thing with regulators is they have a long memory and it takes them a long time to work their way through things to build a case. It can take years, sometimes decades. I mean, if you look at a lot of the fines that banks were handed in the last decade, it relates to the decade before that. It really is uh, you know, incredible how long these things can take, but they still happen. And so you know, the fact that you didn't get fined uh, within six months of having done the raise doesn't mean that you won't get fined. Um, but there are people who raised hundreds of millions and into the billions at one point that have to be looking at this and looking over their shoulder a little bit. And I think trying not to take money from US registered investors uh, by doing a bit of KYC AML up front is not the, uh, not the only answer here. Um, and then the, uh, there's a story comes from the Wall Street Journal. Um, so a firm tied to a cryptocurrency entrepreneur faces SEC investigation. So security regulators are investing salt lending holdings who raised a $50 million cryptocurrency sale or token sale. The company which loans money to people using their cryptocurrency as collateral received a subpoena from the SEC on in February seeking records related to that token sale. Um, regulators are looking whether SALT's token sales should have been registered with the SEC and how SALT insiders received tokens, how token proceeds were used, and whether raising money uh, whilst Mr. Voorhees served on SALT's board violated a 2014 SEC settlement that banned Mr. Voorhees from such a fundraising. I assume they mean Eric Voorhees here. Um, this is a really, really interesting one. Again, um, you know, if 2017 was the regulators are coming, the 2018, especially if we get to the end of it, the regulators have arrived, um, and then some. Um, we're in a bear market, and the uh, the actions are happening. We're probably going to see more of this, but is this the end for the token, Addy, or, or does the token have a future? 
Yeah, I, I think again, uh, there's first of all, there's a jurisdictions question here. Um, so people acted in this space, some by picking specific jurisdictions, many avoided the US uh, to avoid the SEC and stuck, uh, you know, took legal advice and are sticking to certain markets and certain types of behavior. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we will learn through the SEC's actions how far they're going and, you know, the, the sort of jurisdictional reach. I think that's a big part of this. They're obviously joining some dots here as well. Right, so they've got people they've spoken to before. They've got some uh, some activity here, which clearly, because it wasn't regulated, there wasn't much visibility, and now they're digging deeper. And as you say, they, they, they've got a long list to go through, and we, we don't really know how far it's going. It'll be interesting to see those people who believe they've acted outside the jurisdictional reach of the SEC, how, how true that holds, um, and, and you know whether... Well, that, that was my question earlier. It's, it's those people who believe they're outside of the jurisdiction, what happens to them? And then secondly, I think there's this other category, uh, the likes of Harbour and Templum and people doing securities token offerings that were regulated from the start. All the people who did reggae, reg D offerings of tokens, you know, where do they end up and, uh, and what's going to be the uh, fallout from that if they did register with the FCC or... Even if they're trading uh, existing asset classes and looking to get regulated, you know, to me, what we're learning here is flouting the regulations and doing a token sale anyway is probably not a good idea. No shit, Sherlock. Um, but actually, having something that solves a problem using tokens is something that the market wants and the regulator seems altogether fine with. Yes, I, th I, th I tend to agree with that. If you've, um, if you've taken the steps towards the regulator and shown the type of behavior that the regulator uh, is really looking for and you're showing that you're avoiding the type of behavior that the regulator you know, is coming after, then obviously you've got a much better chance of, of not being flagged uh, by them. I also think that you know, ICOs and cryptocurrency in general, I think that there are just some areas of the market where I think we will see this flourish without necessarily falling under the SEC radar. So I think areas like, um, let's say, gaming uh -huh. uh, um, and, uh, you know, let's say, uh, I don't know, adult industries and, and, and these types of uh, areas and, uh, you know, this type of activity in Asia and so on, uh, I think there's no reason why that, would, that wouldn't grow and flourish and not really be, uh, you know, be in the space that the SEC is concerned about. Mm -hmm. I think where you've got certainly things where you've got US investors and US individuals and so on, uh, or, or marketing, uh, of, marketing of any sort of investments in the US, I think that's where you're looking to, where you're flying close to the edge. Or where you have a large financial institution that, um, or, or even any financial institution that has interests in the US, um, it, it suddenly makes any relationship to uh, an ICO-issued token that wasn't a registered security toxic. And actually, that's dangerous because the concept of a token that can move around the world as title to uh, a set of uh, either assets or um, characteristics or, or capabilities or products it's a really compelling idea. The fact that you know moving property between person one and person two means updating five different databases and is this really long-winded process uh, is, is frankly shocking. Um, but you know, it turns out paper is a superhero. Like if I if I took a piece of paper that was a land title deed and I changed the owner on that piece of paper, that's recognised nearly anywhere in the world. So long as that property sits within a jurisdiction that recognises that paper, we can change that and trade it almost anywhere. That's not true for uh, how digital financial services work. So the opportunity of changing that, I still think, like, it feels to me like people think the end of the ICO party is the end of the story. To me, it's just the beginning. Yeah, so, so for me, I think a lot of things are being mixed together here that maybe shouldn't be. 
So as I said to you a minute ago, there's certain industries that I think this, this could thrive in. There are others which are regulated businesses and let's say enterprises and you know, businesses here in the West, shall we say, who are not really going to start using cryptocurrency anytime soon. Now, if I look at the ICOs, many of the ICOs promised the, the efficiencies that you just described. Right? So they're promising business efficiency through moving around assets and having secure base for where those assets are registered and very efficient movement and settlement around those assets uh, and on all the other types of business processes that could be potentially layered more efficiently on top between those parties. Now, that efficiency you could potentially get from blockchain technology. Uh-huh. Right? That, that's, what we're, that's what we're all selling. Companies like us are selling here. But that's been mixed with cryptocurrency. Now, why has that been mixed with cryptocurrency for these ICOs? Because it's been mixed with fundraising. So fundraising has been brought into, cryptocurrency is brought into this as a fundraising mechanism for these projects that bring efficiency. But the efficiency can be brought about without a crypto token. See, interestingly, uh, if I talk to a Brian Bellendorf or if I talk to a Richard Brown, so R3 and Hyperledger respectively, they would say, don't forget that tokens exist on uh, in, in the world of a blockchain, but it, it looks and feels different. A token is not a form of fundraising. A token is a cryptographic key that represents a real-world asset or value. Uh, and therefore, uh, that thing is useful. That thing uh, could be over-regulated, under-regulated, could be the subject of a backlash or a whiplash response from policymakers um, that could be particularly dangerous to the concept of creating those efficiencies in the first place. I think the confusion between um, cryptocurrency versus blockchain is too binary. We have this gray area in the middle um, that some people use the term securities tokens for, other people use the word token, whatever language needs to evolve. There is a form of representing value which is not necessarily necessarily native to the fundraising for the platform itself, but that represents value uh, and is tightly woven to that platform, that I think is super interesting uh, that the binary blockchain and DLT versus crypto debate doesn't necessarily uh, capture. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So I think, again, the efficiency comes from having a, a place or platform where we both agree you know, I can load my money into and then I can transfer it to you through a smart contract or through some process. Um, does that have to be a cryptocurrency or is it, or, or, or am I getting that token from a, any money licensed institution? Could it be or a, a bank token? Or, or, could, it exactly. be, uh, could it be a real world asset? Exactly. It doesn't matter in, in the terms of the efficiency itself. So right? to me, if you start to immobilize real world assets and then you move tokens, things get really, really interesting because trying to move real world assets is incredibly slow because of the duplication involved. Trying to move a token that represents those real world assets is far more efficient. The trick is, how do I immobilize the real world asset? So that's going to be a debate we're going to come back to, I'm sure. Alrighty, um, next story comes from ccn.com. Uh, apparently, they're asking the question, is crypto too expensive? Well, Binance sent $600 million worth of Bitcoin for just $7. Um, transaction in block 550211 uh, was a transfer of just over a million dollars. For this transaction, Binance paid over just just over $8 in fees. And for another transaction, $600 million at the time it was sent, uh, made in the largest unspent transaction output to date. Wow, um, that was a pretty large uh, UTXO. Um, this second transaction made in block 550155, uh, several hours earlier, comprised of 591 bytes of data, yet cost the exchange just over $7. Um, Wow. What are your thoughts on this one, Andy? 
Wow, I mean, it shows you that the underlying costs really aren't, aren't, can't be very high. Well, I think it says cost is relative, right? So um, Bitcoin is a sledgehammer to crack a nut if you're trying to use it for consumer remittances. Like this is uh, a way in which you can uh, move money around the world and it will just do what it says on the tin. It is this brutal machine that just, it just does what it does and it does it extremely well. Um, but actually, you know, if you're looking at how that compares to traditional financial services, to try and move a million dollars starts to cost a lot more than $7 um, in, in real-world terms. You know, interbank fees run in the neighborhood of between, well, you know, it could be basis points, um, it could be 25 bips, it can be 50 bips. Um, uh, if they're, but if they're being moved internationally, that can get into the one, one and a half percent region sometimes or flat fees. Um, so like trying to move $600 million in PayPal, you're looking at something <laughs> insane uh, to, in order to be able to do that in terms of fees. So Fees don't scale well um, in, in the world of financial services today. And actually, this is probably where Bitcoin might just have a future. What, what are your thoughts? Is that realistic or is Bitcoin just uh, the pariah that's always going to be on the fringes? Could this be the, the, the power of this sort of open and democratized platform? So the pricing of the transaction, when it, when it can only be done by a small number of players is really almost monopolistic pricing. So, yep. so you know, it's not, it's not relative to the cost anymore. It's just, what can I, what can I charge for this? Precisely. Uh, whereas here, you've got a relatively open market, um, competition and technology that's really accessible to many. Uh, and, and then you get this very, very low transaction fee, which is passed on to, to the end user. The irony is that it, it, the original white paper says peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Um, and if those peers are massive, then it, it's a fantastic solution. Um, but if those peers are consumers, then it, you know, the cost and the economies just aren't there. Um, but at this scale, the economies are there. But there's a big shiny butt. Um, you know, like if you are the kind of organization that's going to be moving this kind of money, you may be regulated. If you are the kind of organization that's going to be moving this kind of money, you may want to deal with the fact that your finance team sent it to the wrong place and get it back somehow. These are not options in Bitcoin unless you've got a really friendly counterparty. So removing middlemen sometimes removes uh, sort of... Uh, the ability to do things. Now, a lot of the true believers um, who set up Bitcoin in the first place would say, well, that's fine. That's, you know, if, you, if you're not in charge of your own money, then more fool you. But I don't believe that that's how the majority of the economy wants to operate. Um, and, and maybe that changes, who knows? Uh, but interesting, interesting story regardless, because it's a good reminder that even though crypto's in its kind of downswing and uh, one heck of a bear market right now, there's still value here. Yes, I'd also um, question, you know, th this was executed by, through Binance, you know, what are, what are the checks they've got in place? What are the overheads that they've taken on in terms of, uh, you know, ensuring that there's some... Uh, Have you just moved the cost? Yes, yes. Uh, interesting question. Has Binance had to take on the cost and the risk that uh, a third party might be able to do at scale for them historically? Although, uh, interestingly, if you see, uh, if you believe the reports coming out of Binance, they are a profit-making machine. So who knows um, whether there were any controls there at all. We, we don't see inside that organization, but it, I'd be, love to be a fly on the wall. All right, just as a reminder, listeners, this episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain. Uh, it's not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. 
Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with the R3 Corda platform. It offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus, which I feel like should be Alvin, Simon, and Theodore, the chipmunks. Like, they, they need to brand this one. Um, plus, it includes mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including the world's only blockchain application firewall. The Corda platform, uh, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head over to r3.com for more info. Alrighty, uh, next story comes from Coindesk. Um, Shell and British Petroleum back a blockchain platform to modernize commodities trading. Uh, so they're among a group of firms planning to launch a blockchain platform to automate post-trade processes in the energy industry. Uh, the consortium um, building the platform is called VACT Global, V-A-K-T, um, very scary sounding name. Um, they expect to go live at the end of November in the North Sea oil market. So crack on, guys. It's the 20th of November as we record this. Um, in 2019, they're looking at ARA barges, waterborne markets, and U.S. crude pipelines, said their global head of product. Um, they're also saying the blockchain platform will be run as a new venture by the consortium members to be managed and operated as an independent entity. Probably should mention you guys are a partner in this. What, what's going on here? Does this make is it does that describe it to you, or is it a bit different? Yeah. So, so as you probably know, we we work uh, very closely with Shell. Yeah. Um, Shell is actually an investor in applied blockchain, and we've got some other work we've been doing with Shell. Uh, some of which we can talk about in a minute, which has been publicised as well. We're not directly involved in this particular project, but we're working with the, the, the teams that are working with us as well. So. So what are they looking to get out of post-trade in the energy market? Where are the inefficiencies? So for me, th this is the real deal. Yeah. Right? This, this is big businesses, and I think this, this is one of the first real instances that we're seeing. Big businesses getting together, doing something together, using blockchain technology to actually get the real value out of the tech. So what we talked about earlier when we were talking about ICOs, we talked about movement of assets yeah. and settlement through a distributed ledger. This is the companies that do a lot of big business and a lot of settlement um, activity, and they're building a platform together to enable them to do that. And historically, you used to be staring at the back end of SAP, and somebody in a finance department was using complex, various versions of SAP that didn't really talk to each other, that then spat out a PDF and then had a contract somewhere, which creates a bit of a nightmare. But surely somebody could have built all of this with a centralized platform. What did I need DLT for? That's correct. Um, but... Uh, when you've got so, so first of all, those SAPs systems they they do still sit inside these companies. Yeah, you're not um, going to turn those off. You're not going to you're not going to turn those off anytime soon, but they're they're internal systems. So you can't use your SAP system to to transact with somebody else. You can only record your side of it. If you want to record both sides of it, then traditionally you'd look at a third party to do that. Um, what they're doing here is they're each keeping a copy through the blockchain of the transaction that they're executing together. They're doing it through a smart contract um, and they're uh, looking at, at some point in the future to actually settle through it as well. Um, so, th th so there's this, no this, one entity yep. taking a legal risk in the middle of it. There's no central counterparty um, that's taking the, uh, managing the risk. They're managing all of the risk themselves. And so by having this technology, um, it really just keeps them in sync without creating a central counterparty or legal entity. Yeah, I mean, I don't know all of the, all of those details, um, but my understanding is you've got three energy companies here, three trading houses, three banks yeah. uh, for the financing, uh, and, and they formed a consortium between them, 
and that's allowing them to create a distributed solution and there is sharing of value and risk through that. It's interesting. Um, I, I can hear Mike Kelly in the back of my mind. Shout out to Mike, um, sort of saying, well, I could have just built this centralized. Um, talk a little bit about what you're doing with the likes of Shell and others and, and kind of talk us through you know, why there is something in your mind to, to doing things a slightly different way to just using um, kind of AWS for everything. Yeah, so so what we've been doing, we've been working with Shell for, I guess, a year and a half now, uh, with Shell trading directly. We built a platform for trading financial products, so financial derivatives for, for energy products. Uh, the platform went live two weeks ago, so we executed the first derivative product derivative trade mm-hmm. uh, for crude, uh, and that was done at the Shell desk here in London. Uh, we actually had the Shell CEO presented... Uh, at a big conference in Lisbon a couple of weeks ago, wow. uh, and he, he created a video. They created a video for the, how they see the digital future of the company and trust, uh, and they showcased this trade and, and applied blockchains partnership with Shell wow. uh, to, to create that. Uh, so that, that was a very big moment for us. It was taking the technology, which for us has been open technology. It's been using the public blockchain, uh, and we've been preaching to enterprises that they should be using this and there's value in it. Uh, and we moved it, it took us a year, we moved it into a production environment uh, in, in one of the largest enterprises Wow! Uh, and got it into live and into the hands of real traders, real business users, where the trades that they're making are very high value. So this is, this is a real system uh, wh- which is being used by, by people with this technology underneath it. So why couldn't that have been centralised? So the idea with that is to, uh, to settle, uh, to, to actually order uh, trades between different counterparts, initially internally, um, but th- th- there's a future roadmap for it, uh, and the different entities, and those different entities um, have to agree, they have to agree the trade and they have to agree the price. Mm-hmm. Um, and those agreements need to be captured in a way that all the parties are happy to settle against. Mm-hmm. So they need to be captured in a way that there can be absolutely no dispute mm-hmm. about the exact price at the time of the trade and so on. So blockchains are very good at sequencing uh, kind of kind of the order of events and bringing agreement to what the uh, what the order of events is. That's correct. And capturing the details yeah. of those events and if you like the digital signatures of the parties at mm-hmm. the time to, to, to prove that this is what they agreed to. And, and then making it very difficult for anybody to defraud that or to change it. So I imagine somebody uh, with a tech hat on would say, well, I could have done that with PKI and built writing code around it, to which the answer is, yeah, you could, but a blockchain is a neat way of doing that or something else. So you, so yes, you could, but uh, where you have different parties involved, there is, the, so the, the PKI will allow you to prove that the different parties signed mm-hmm. the, the, the data. Um, what you can't do with PKI on its own uh, is prove the order, the sequence, the dates. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, you, what the blockchain allows you to do is have a group uh, secured um, place where the order cannot be changed, the timestamps cannot be changed, and you're not creating so a new central party who says, "Well, I say it's this, and my record exactly. rules, and you all agree that my record rules." It's yes. actually we've all come to agreement that that's the same, and my system matches your system. I'm not just believing the central system, and this happens in financial markets consistently, correct, where correct. my record doesn't match the central counterparty, which doesn't match the client, which doesn't match somebody else, and even though the central counterparty might be the golden source. In legal terms, they're actually not. My my record is the master record as a bank or as, as whatever else. So you can't have this situation in which the central counterparty is the only keeper of the master record. In financial markets generally, you have this real issue around creating a golden source. Yep. C- correct. So, th- so I'm a techie, and for me, this is technically more secure mm. 
for the different parties involved. Mm. Uh, it's a more secure way of capturing those agreements, storing them and proving that they haven't changed. Why? Um, because the different parties themselves are party to securing it. Yeah, interesting. Interesting concept. All right, we'll come back and spend more time on that one. Um, bear in mind as well, um, there is a kind of similar story here that's been playing around for a little while. Um, so it comes from Coindesk. Um, IBM and the Maersk Shipping Partnership are apparently struggling to sign up some partners to that shipping blockchain. Um, so 10 months ago, the project spun out. Um, but um, the, uh, the kind of, uh, I think, it was it? Marvin Erdley, there's an interesting name, from TradeLens at IBM Blockchain said um, they do need to get other carriers on the platform. So it's interesting that uh, this was a big ballyhoo for Musk. They were out there, they were creating the name, but they hadn't created the consortium. They'd gone and done it themselves. And in a market where you're the market leader and you say, woohoo, I'm doing a thing, and everybody else goes, great, you might want to talk to me about it. Like, it, there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain, um, as Richard Crook likes to say. <laughs> so what lessons learned there. All right, and I love this story that comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, the Deloitte blockchain chief says, bad crypto headlines are making clients nervous. Um, so uh, the quote here is, can we stop talking about my bad brother? That's how Linda... I'm not going to try and pronounce her last name. The leader of Deloitte's consulting financial services industry blockchain group describes conversations she often has these days with execs and board members of client companies. She also said, the boards are asking us about it because it's in the news for bad actors and boards are nervous that blockchain is affiliated with Bitcoin, altcoins, ICOs. Damn, this subject has a reputation issue, right? I mean, is this, is this something you see every day as well? Yeah, this is exactly what we contend with. Um, and I think the, the technical justifications for uh, or, or the technical advantages of the, of the technology, as I described to you in the last piece around group security for recording and proving that things haven't changed uh, in terms of agreements and, and assets and, and moving assets and so on. That's where the advantages are. And yes, cryptocurrency is a, was a bold move that kick-started the technology and may well have a, a, an amazing future, but it, it's also a rocky road. Uh, and people need to know how to separate those two things and, and understand them, really. It's, it's an educational But actually, so uh, I remember in 2014, I was one of the people saying back into the bank I worked for at the time, um, look at the tech. Just Can we put your fears about the crypto aside from, for one second and look at the tech? And I actually regret doing that because it became a bit of a meme. And now you see global policymakers and regulators say, we're fine with the technology, we just don't like these currencies. And I think that kind of obfuscates the debate. It, it kind of removes the nuance. But if, if it's what people need to get over their fear initially and to look at something, that's fine. Um, but I really do think that uh, once you combine that resilience and that shared record, you can then start to do things with the smart contract. So um, it was Lee Brain at Barclays who once said this concept of an interorganizational workflow is really powerful. Um, so yes, you have centralized parties helping you manage an interorganizational workflow today, but in financial markets especially, but I imagine in healthcare, insurance, automotive, everywhere you have this issue of like once i've done a thing you need to do a thing and then they need to do a thing and then that other guy needs to do a thing well typically that's a you know i do a thing and then i wait for you to do your thing and tell me you've done your thing and then they send a message to the next guy who does their thing if i know what i see is what you see 
then I can do the next thing and you can do the next thing. And we have these this different layer of efficiencies. And when that's moving assets backwards and forwards, you start to get into this really interesting position. If I can move legal title at the speed of digital, that's what gets me really, really excited. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I'd also split these things. So there's a few things going on. There's the technology, as you say, for, for efficiencies that, that we've talked about here. There's ICOs for fundraising. And, and all the issues that associated with that, is it security in the SEC and which jurisdiction and so on. Then there's the cryptocurrency platforms themselves, but also for their technology value. So let's say we build a solution for someone who wants to record something on the blockchain or use smart contracts. Well, here's Ethereum or Bitcoin, a ready-made distributed network that you could just use and solves your business problem. So can you? So is it okay to pay an ether? Is that is that an issue or not? Yeah. yeah so so that that I would separate. You end up, up with these grey areas and yep. these vagaries that I think is really interesting. And and to your point about ICOs and the token sales and token raising as being like uh, kind of something that was challenging. I do think it speaks to the lack of fundraising options entrepreneurs had. You know, VC doesn't work for everybody. Private equity comes in at a later stage. Debt isn't for everybody. Like innovation in fundraising is not bad per se. Um, but you have to be very careful when you do so. But innovation in fundraising to me, and, and I think what you're saying is that's not where the real nub of this thing is. It's much more interesting when you get into the these crypto networks give us consensus between mutually distrusting actors and how can you use those? So I definitely think there's room for innovation on the fundraising side. Um, I think in the beginning of the ICO craze, I loved the idea of just about everybody I knew in the space becoming an angel investor. Uh. That, that, that was tremendous. And people were, were intelligently picking projects. Um, and it, it was really that just, I think that was tremendous. Um, of course, then I think the space just became abused and you had a lot of, a lot of people coming on and uh, without very credible um, fundraising activity. And that's really where I think the SEC has started to step in. And it became too big too yes. fast. Uh, I think the other thing that's interesting that's going on now is you hear a lot of um, uh, utility tokens are done, ICOs are over, it's, uh, security tokens are the next big thing. From what I've seen of security tokens, they're not the same animal. They're not the same thing. So my, from my, my understanding, security tokens are really a way of, uh, of tokenizing, of expressing a, a security. So um, uh, effectively some sort of hold on the company, the company's assets, uh, shareholding, uh, access to dividends or profits and so on. That's not the same as a, a payment token that was integrated into a smart contract-based blockchain application. Yeah. It's not. You wouldn't start moving your company's shares around the smart contracts that are running the company's business logic. And right? so, so something's so, being lost in the transition. Yeah, so, so, so some people are thinking, well, and I think this is, this is a misunderstanding. People are thinking, oh, here's a legal utility token, right? Yeah. The, 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 these are tokens that are exactly as we had before, but now they're kosher, right? Now, now the SEC likes them. They're not the same thing. And you can't just come along with a business and say, now we're creating a shipping network uh, and we're going to use a secure, issue a security token and we're all going to pay each other, what, in shares of this company? Yeah, it, no, it, it doesn't I, work in the same way. I, I think that space of token, uh, kind of the different types of value a token can represent has probably defaulted to the most simplistic, um, having gone from the most exotic. And what I mean by that is uh, we started out in the let's reinvent fundraising and, uh, you know, have have borderline anarchy in fundraising and no surprise that didn't cover itself in glory. Um, and now we've swung to the opposite extreme, which is let's, let's just do what we do today, but with slightly faster tokens making it happen. I think somewhere in the middle, um, you've got this, these two things happening. You've got one, which is immobilizing real-world assets, and two, natively digital assets. And I think natively 
natively digital assets don't have to be um, crypto network based. They could be, but they could also be um, video game points, video game avatar skins, like all kinds of digital goods and services, music, art, all of that sort of stuff. That's where things get kind of interesting too. Uh, agreed. I think there were also some very interesting co concepts that came with the ICOs. So you had the, the ideas of, of, of open source, of a network which a company or a group of people start, but then becomes owned by the users or owned by the network and governance. So it becomes open and governed by the network through these tokens. So you have token holders who can influence the future of the network, and they, and, and, and it's the users that, that, that are actually have, have, have some sort of stake in the future of the network. I think security tokens, are, are, I'm not sure if they, they translate that. to that type of model as well. They moved away from that. If you look at um, Tezos and Bakers and some of the governance that sits around that, Tezos was the poster child for you know the drama in ICOs. But if anything, it's probably the one that's got its act together the, the least worst <laughs> out of everybody uh, since then. So there's some really interesting experimentation in how can you get open source communities to collaborate around a pot of money um, and to collaborate around a set of goals that I think hasn't really been done before and people who are interested in open source should be paying attention to. Alrighty, next story comes from uh, the Kraken blog. Um, Kraken have credited their clients with Bitcoin SV, also known as BSV, and launched BSV trading. So um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, the there was a recent Bitcoin cash hard fork, um, which resulted in two, for now, viable chains. Bitcoin Cash, um, which is following the Bitcoin Cash ABC protocol and a roadmap published by BitcoinCash.org, and Bitcoin SV, which is following the Bitcoin Cash SV protocol and a roadmap published by Enchain. Um, so this is really, really interesting um, set of warnings that come on the Kraken website as a result. Um, but we saw this after Bitcoin originally forked, and so similar things around the Ethereum fork. When you got Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, when you get Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, a lot of exchanges kind of waited to see what was happening, and some just directly credited their users with the uh, with the coins from the new forked chain. Um, seems like Kraken's going that second route. Um, it is it is a difficult thing to figure out what do you do if this if this asset forks um, and this chain forks and, and it raises all sorts of interesting questions. Um, but this warning, I'm just going to read it out. Um, so Kraken say, Bitcoin SV does not, in capital letters, meet Kraken's usual listing requirements. It should be seen as an extremely high-risk investment. There are many red flags that traders should be aware of. Uh, no known wallet support replay protection. Be careful. No support in major block explorers. Miners apparently subsidized for operating at a loss. Representatives threatening and openly hostile towards other chains. <laughs> Chain survival may be mutually exclusive with other chains. Supply is temporarily constrained because of limited wallet support. Some large holders have indicated they'd be dumping everything ASAP. Kraken has done a very minimal code review. Oh, wow. I mean, like, there's so much to to unpick there, but I think probably just sticking out while wow, we're still in the Wild West with some of this stuff, right? Yeah, I was going to say, is this, this is what happens when you democratise uh, the, the financial system, right? There's a, I think forks are, um, uh, I mean, they're, they're a super interesting subject in, in themselves. I think the exchanges are in a very powerful position. Uh, if you think about it, it was the, the, the first exchange that, that allowed you to buy Bitcoin that really brought Bitcoin to life and gave it its, its true value. So when an exchange, the same thing with the Ethereum fork, when the first exchanges allowed Ethereum Classic to be, to be purchased and traded, it, it suddenly had value. Mm -hmm. 
that they're really the ones that can actually make or break these these forks. They're in this interesting arbiter of discretion sort of um, position, yeah. and. They are basically saying here, and Kraken have always been one of the more outspoken exchanges and and on the libertarian slash anarchy front in terms of you should own your own crypto. If it's out there, you should be able to have it. Um, And they've famously had fights with, I think it's the New York DFS or the New York Fed or one of those two um, in public on Twitter. Um, So they're they're definitely uh, not operating in New York when when they say these things. but even then, they're like trying to hold up a giant flashing sign saying, warning, warning, this can be dangerous. It, it, it's no wonder uh, regulators are worried about things like consumer protection. Yeah, I, th- I think there's uh, there's a lot of politics here and, and there's a lot of vested interests. Uh, you have ownership of the different tokens and you have people behind them. And blockchain is a very interesting link between uh, kind of democratized ownership and the technology itself. So you could end up with situations where technology is held back because of the value that's in existing technology that people hold on to and don't want to let go of. Well, and you get token barons. If I have accumulated a massive amount of tokens early on in something, then suddenly I have a lot of power in that network just by how I move, choose to move my coins or not move my coins. Uh, it's this interesting mix of game theory, economics and technology that makes it so intriguing for the nerds among us. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another example of that, I heard someone say to me the other day uh, regarding forks that they could actually undermine any of these networks uh, in the sense that uh, if, if they became really used for applications, for example, would it not be tempting to, to fork in a, ne- a network of its entire history uh, where the fork would be cheaper? So if you were paying transaction fees, would the actors not always move to the cheaper version? So much to consider. Yes. So much to consider. And uh, like a lot of these things, we're running out of time. And there are a bunch of stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, Of course, the obvious one, Bitcoin prices hit a 13-month low as the crypto market slumped. And then it went down a bit more. Um, Beyond the price, uh, why we need a better way to value crypto assets come from uh, Coindesk, which uh, is a timely headline, but is actually about how they measure uh, crypto in things like the size of their community, Git commits, and all kinds of other interesting things. That's actually well worth a read. Um, and apparently, according to Coindesk as well, uh, interesting crypto jobs are still strong despite the market decline. Uh, this comes from the job site Indeed. It's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. All right, Tweet of the Week comes from uh, the wonderful Larry Cermak. And if you're not following dr.co, then you need to be. Uh, this tweet um, sort of says, uh, hey, four months left to be correct. I present to you the Bitcoin price predictors. Um, and he then lists four people who gave Bitcoin price predictions in January. Um, and the K. Van Peterson, um, with their Twitter handle KVP underscore macro, predicted $100,000 in 2018 uh, in January. John Pfeiffer, uh, $75,000. Ari Paul, who's well known on Twitter predicted $60,000 and Philip Nunn $60,000. Beware of price predictions, people. Um, That is not investment advice. That is just good advice. (laughs) Um, So do your own research and don't listen to preachers on Twitter, clearly. Any thoughts on this one, Eddie? Look, I'm a techie and I've never really been able to to predict the crypto side of it or to really understand the the, the markets behind it. Um, So... 
yeah, I'm going I'm to stay out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. All right. Thank you very much for listening. As a quick reminder, uh, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. And if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, well, the subscribe button is like right there. You're subscribed, aren't you, Eddie? I am, absolutely. Yeah, that's what we like. More subscribers. Tell everyone you know. Um, and if you're already subscribed, um, why not throw us a review? Um, but, uh, you know, there's been no Colin G. Platt for a while, but you still give us five stars or maybe his lack of appearances gets five stars. I think certainly, Addy, you've been a five-star guest, so really appreciate you being with us. Also, shout out to Andrew Lockhart in Australia. Word on the street is you are a massive fan of the show. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Eddie? Um, AppliedBlockchain.com. So just our company website, I think so. Best place to start. Cool. Um, and also giving talks around the world, I'm sure. Uh, Already, uh, big thanks to our amazing production team, uh, our producer Petrit, and uh, of course Laura, who helps out with the show massively, and Alex, uh, who's stepping in for Michael this week as editor. And I thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>